You're listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transition-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Today, the Yes Center's Dale Verstegen talks with Dale DeLeo about the worrying increase in non-work and the importance of real competitive integrated employment. Stegen here with uh, Dale DeLeo, um, and we're at the APSI conference, and Dale has just finished his keynote address. Uh, Dale, thanks for taking some time to uh, talk to us today. My pleasure. So during your comments, uh, one of the things that uh, you talked about that was really startling uh, to me was the growth of this category called non-work, particularly as it relates to folks with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Could you talk some more about that? That's right. Um, there's uh, been a lot of uh, data collection over the years done primarily by uh, Institute for Community Inclusion in Boston. And um, early on, you know, there was most of the focus of that tracking was on the percent of people being served in integrated employment and the corresponding percent of people being served in segregated facility-based employment, which, of course, our hope starting in the late 80s, early 90s, is that we'd have a continued increase in integrated employment with a corresponding decrease in facility-based employment. What's actually happened is we went from you know a very small percentage to about 21, 22% in a fairly quick time. Uh, and, and that number, which was reached probably in like 1991 or so, has stayed stable. Um, hasn't really increased in over you know 25 years, which means that in terms of concerning what systems changes, um, we haven't been able to get more people into integrated employment for the last 25 years as a percentage basis. What we have seen, though, is we've seen a bit of a corresponding decline in segregated facility-based employment. It's been very slow, um, but the, the writing seems to be on the wall that people get the fact that uh, all of the evidence points to that uh, shelter workshops are largely uh, ineffective in terms of creating uh, individualized job opportunities for people that match their skills and interests. And some of the data even indicates that um, it, they, over time, cost more, and um, putting somebody into a shelter workshop only delays the uh, likelihood of them getting into uh, a real employment opportunity. So, uh, you know, Policy should reflect the, uh, the, the research-based evidence that comes out. So we think slowly it is. But um, what's a bit worrisome these days is that there's been a very large increase in numbers of people served, not an increase in people with uh, intellectual developmental disabilities in employment, and not certainly in facility-based employment, but there's this new area of what's been termed non-work. And non-work is, is rather a, a vague um, nomenclature. We, we don't know exactly what grouping of kinds of programs that refers to. Um, I, some of it may be absolutely uh, beneficial and useful for some individuals in terms of um, maybe elderly people who really don't have an interest in working at their age and want to be involved in their community. Or it may include um, segregated programs that are doing um, anything from you know jigsaw puzzles to uh, really useless uh, uh, sorting pre-activity kinds of kinds of things. We simply don't know, but it is worrisome. 
um, that large numbers of people being served, it's by far the majority, uh, does it have anything to do with improving their lives? Are they, are they getting socially um, involved in ways that are meaningful? Are we improving their rate of poverty um, so that they're not in poverty? I, I don't know, and, and the data isn't there yet. So we need to pay careful attention when people start saying, oh, we've got these people out of the facility. Well, what are they doing? You know, riding around in vans, um, touring the neighborhood is not really a meaningful day for anybody. So that's a, uh, an area we have to be very careful of because a lot of money is now flowing to these programs that um, pur you know, purport to be something, doing something that relates to community building. Uh, and I have no idea whether that's true or not. I don't think anybody does. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's worrisome to me. It should be worrisome to policymakers and funders as well. Yes, and so um, the audience for, for this podcast is uh, the states that are involved with the partnerships and employment, uh, the federal uh, funds. And, and so I, I think that category of non-work uh, should be of particular interest to those folks involved yeah. with systems change. Um, recently, because of the WIOA legislation, um, we've had uh, a requirement that each state was to go around and talk to everybody that was receiving segregated employment services about the notion of community employment. Um, uh, we're getting some s statistics from those studies, at least the states that are willing to share it, but the statistics that I'm hearing is majority, i.e. over 50% of the folks being interviewed uh, are, are wanting employment. Uh, what's your experience with that whole phenomenon? Do you see that as a, a glimmer of hope in that at least uh, they're asking and people are responding positively? Well, that, that glimmer of hope, I think, has existed since the late 80s, early 90s. There's early studies. Uh, David tested one at University of North Carolina that, that purported to be in the 90% of uh. asking people, do you want a job? All the research I've seen on this around um, are you interested in working in the community uh, has been positive, ranging from over 55, 60% to closer to 90%. And I think the irony of, of this kind of thing is that a lot of the counter arguments around um, the idea that we are taking away people's choice by asking them to leave segregated facilities when in fact people are expressing choice for employment and we're not giving that to them. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting argument to hear um, you're taking away a segregated choice when in fact um, the, the default setting has always been we have taken away uh, an integrated mm -hmm. choice because we're not allowing people who want to go to work to get to work. We don't have the resources or the capacity still to do that. The money is still flowing to the status quo default setting, which is segregated employment. So I've always found that to be a bit um, of a difficult argument to accept around sure. taking choice. I also have to say that I, I don't have a problem with government restricting choice. I think personally that's government's job is to define how taxpayer money should be spent and on what. Um, and nowhere should there necessarily be an item that says, oh, your son and daughter has a disability. Um, one of your choices is to remove them from the community, segregate them, and mm -hmm. um, house them for $150,000 a year. Right. That, to me, makes little sense because there's no evidence to support that's a useful, meaningful thing to do. It's old-time thinking. Government should use tax dollars wisely, and that doesn't seem like a wise use of tax right. dollars to me. Right. So restricting choice, 
that's okay yeah. as long as it's done with evidence-based approaches that um, say and you know all our laws support integration as a mandate it's right. in the dd act it's in uh, every other you know law we have so saying we're not respecting people who choose to want to live in a segregated lifestyle um, really falls against what it is our our laws say and what our mandate should be anyway yeah good so I want to come back to this this this, this statistic around a growing number of people in non-work um, and I want to kind of combine it with the recent home and community-based waiver mm -hmm. uh, rule changes mm -hmm. and even though that deadline date is kind of moved back uh, I think for me anyways another glimmer of hope is the fact that a lot of states are still moving ahead with uh, mm -hmm. gathering information, providing mandates, uh, requiring providers to say what are you going to do around uh, more community integration. So um, what I'm wondering is if that category of non-work in fact is leading to community services, and I know you mentioned the notion of uh, van therapy or <laughs> I have a colleague Sarah who likes to use uh, the term supported loitering mm -hmm. and I'm sure some of that stuff is going on but some of it may be work related uh, around volunteering uh, people exploring their where their interests lie particularly that could lead to vocational outcomes are there things that can be done under that non-work category that might be a pathway for more folks? Well, potentially, but here's the issue with that, is that we don't have a shred of evidence to support it's useful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of people who said, we can train people in sheltered settings to get them ready for work. And then lo and behold, we did the studies and it doesn't work. It, 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 if anything, it delays the opportunity for work. So. Um, I would be happy to see what some of these non-work mm -hmm. um, kinds of act activities would, would mean in terms of enhancing inclusion and, and ultimately employment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand that employment um, is a goal for most people, but not all people, because sometimes there are people, because of their age or, or whatever reasons, mm -hmm. um, would choose not to do that. But those people are a very small minority. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that they're a minority, but the majority of money is now going to non-work, mm -hmm. that combined with we don't have any research that says this is a useful thing to do, yeah. my question would be why would you condone it, set it up, and support it until you had evidence to say mm -hmm. it does something meaningful? Mm -hmm. We know getting people individual jobs does something meaningful. We know mm -hmm. putting people in segregation is actually a way of getting in the way of that. So rather than focusing on what we know works, what we're doing is building this whole alternative model mm -hmm. using nice terms like community building or mm -hmm. community inclusion, but we don't have a clue, is that changing people's lives? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. before you start spending the bulk of your money on something we don't know whether it even works or not, mm -hmm. wouldn't you want to know, first of all, A, what it is that people are doing, and B, is it having an impact? I would rather see some testing and demonstration of some of these programs yeah. before we start throwing people onto vans and say, let's take you out to the community and make some friends. Sure. Is that going to work? Uh, you know, a lot of evidence says that approach um, relies on whether people have some sort of social stature. Employment is an avenue of giving social stature. Mm -hmm. Are you in a home where you um, have some control over that home and you're valued in the neighborhood? 
Uh, I think work is a primary means of doing that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, you know, going bowling in the group does in terms right, of improving right. your social stature and, I, you sure. know, I, sense of isolation. So these are worrisome things. And mm-hmm. I, as a policymaker, we would be worried about programs that are using terminology like, you know, community inclusion programs mm-hmm. when that terminology is not defined in any kind of meaningful way. Right. Yeah, I think there's a real challenge with that. Um, Given that we are talking to, in some cases, policymakers, what what suggestions do you have? I mean, what where should they point uh, their efforts? Well, you, you know, you spend money on services, and you are in a partnership with providers. So it's in everybody's best interest for providers to survive, have resources, be able to hire good staff, train good staff, and then produce expected mm-hmm. outcomes. So for me. You know, as a policymaker, I would encourage people to, one, be transparent mm-hmm. about where your money is going and what it's getting you. Be clear about data collection and how you're collecting data. Mm-hmm. Set goals for what it is you want from that mm-hmm. data. Don't manipulate statistics because, as we all know, charts and graphs and statistics can be you know, lies, damn lies, and what is it you wanted to say? Um, you know, I, I think a clear situation would simply be, you know, in the next three years, we're serving 18% now of people mm-hmm. in integrated employment. We want to be at 30%. Yeah. We want those jobs to be satisfactory jobs. We want time to interview to drop from three months to six weeks. Right. You know, simple things that we can yeah. track that are right. easy to track. And then if it isn't happening, you need to go in with some real you know, real outcome-based responses that either you get these things in place, we'll give you technical assistance if you need it, we'll get you training if you need it, or we'll get somebody else who can do it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the key to me. You can't keep giving money to people who keep failing to meet what it is you want them to do. That's a hard reality. And you have to be willing to help people get there. But ultimately, if they're not going to get there, it's time to create, maybe uh, do a little uh, uh, business building, a uh, little incubation, and get some organizations up and running that will do it. Right. Otherwise, you're perpetuating a, perpetuating a system that's continuing to not want to change and won't change. Sure. Oh, just a comment. Uh, during your, your, your talk, uh, you, you used, you, you, one of your s- strong points, takeaways, was focus on percentages. And I, I found that, it's pretty simple, but I found that to be very kind of eye-opening for myself. Because if you focus on a number, then how does that relate to actual impact or, right. or long-term change? That can be so manipulated. Uh, you know, I had the misfortune of working with an, a state who set up and convinced me to, to join in with their national five-year initiative. And in five years, they were going to improve numbers of people and percentages of people, so they said. And when push came to shove, the, what came back was, we are going to serve now, we're serving 20,000, and we're going to double that to 40,000 people. 100% increase. But because of the increase in services, mm-hmm. going from 20 to 40 ended up being the same percentage because they went from you know 100,000 to 200,000 yeah. in those same five years. So we ended up with more people in support employment, but no more percentage of people being served in support employment. That trick has gotten used on way too many people. It's a simple thing to say we're serving more people, but you're serving more people anyway. I don't want to just see more people. I want to see less people in segregation Mm -hmm. and more people percentage-wise 
And percentages can be misconstrued too, because they can come back and say, we increased our numbers by 100%. We mm -hmm. went from 20 to 40. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's baloney. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're measuring here. Yeah. So, you know, we've been doing this a while. I remember way back we, we collaborated on a manual for job development. And, that's right. And, uh, and, you know, the percentage was the same. That's right. And, and, uh, and yet we've been at it a really long time. And I know that TRN in particular has really had a commitment to staff development, right. staff training. That's and, right. And, and could you just talk about the, the, the potential impact of capacity building? And the fact that if we, and, and today you talked about innovation and pe more people needing to have and up, upgrade their services. That's and, right. Uh, could you just talk a little bit more about that and the importance of capacity building? Yeah, it's a multi-pronged problem because capacity building means you have leadership, you have a board who supports enthusiastically innovation and, and being willing to modify their approach. And that means you have staff that you can hire who will be there a while at a decent salary, um, and your organization has a commitment to staff development so that you give them the skills they need to be innovative. Because otherwise, if you have you know a morale issue, um, a turnover issue, uh, you know I liken it to you know trying to blow up a balloon with a hole in it. It's like you're constantly pumping information into people, but the balloon never expands because you're constantly turning people over and starting over right, again. Right. And we haven't um, professionalized the field in the way we need to. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't given people opportunities for advancement and increases in wage and, and status that mm -hmm. we've needed to. And we haven't kept up with our own innovations and in getting them out there. Um, you know, I, I, I see people who say, you know, we've embraced natural supports or we've embraced discovery as an approach. And I, I'll walk into their agency to look at what's going on and Unfortunately, it's not being happened at the grassroots level mm -hmm. where it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. People are still um, doing too much training, feeling they need to be the ones doing the training, or doing job development where it's just finding openings and cold calls. Mm -hmm. And those are things we've gotten away from because right. we know they don't work as well. So um, even if you get trained, doesn't mean you're going to implement the training because you're mm -hmm. comfortable. Just that back to that status quo again. You're comfortable doing what you know. So people constantly have to be supported and challenged to do something better. And that takes leadership, and that takes firing people up with energy, and taking pride in what you accomplish. You know, you know organizations that have good cultures will celebrate when something good happens. You know, somebody gets a job, um, here comes an ice cream cone for everybody, you know, and you know something good has happened. And, you know, well, what happened? Oh, it's John got that job of his dreams, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we're, yeah, that's what we want. And if we can't build those cultures, um, we're going to continue to struggle with organizations that are not going to have the creative, innovative kind of mindset we need them to have. Right. Yeah. And I think from a from a Pi Grant state perspective, the more we can honor and support the talent and abilities of those folks that have the skills to innovate at those higher levels, to to they've grown into their jobs, they're good at customized employment, they're they're influencing their coworkers in terms of skills that are needed to do this work. Yeah. Um, how do we how do we get those folks to have the recognition and, and ultimately incentives they need? To yeah, do that's that's a really challenging issue because what has typically happened in organizations like developmental services, for instance, is that they have hierarchies and those hierarchies are not as flat as they should be, and as a result 
good staff who do good things in the field and are making things happen get promoted. Right. And they get promoted mm -hmm. to management. And now they're struggling with hiring, um, paperwork, um, mm -hmm. making sure that their uh, policies are lined up and their files are set. And they're not doing what they're good at. Right. And, you know, it's great that um, they're, they're getting more recognition and they're advancing in their field, but they're not advancing in the arena we want them to advance right. in, you know, and that um, that's a struggle because we need to have career ladders that encourage what it is people are good at. You know, the Peter Principle says you'll rise to your level of incompetence, and it's happening way too often. Mm -hmm. and, and with people who are good at working with people and businesses about mm -hmm. good job matches, and not so good about paperwork right. or managing thirty people or interviewing people who happen to be good at what they do around. Mm -hmm. filling that match you've got to be we we've got to get people who are good at what they do to stay with what they do yet improve their wages and situations so that they feel they feel valued right. and, and will keep doing what it is they're good at and part that to other staff yeah absolutely well we've covered a lot of ground here um i think you've given uh folks that will hear this podcast some some good food for thought, and I think in some ways some marching orders in terms of <laughs> uh, working with staff and working on policy and, and focusing on this non-work category that yeah. seems to be uh, ballooning in terms exactly. of uh, the services. So, Dale, thanks so much for all your time today. Dale, it's been a pleasure. You know, a lot of what we're talking about is disruptive. We acknowledge it's disruptive, but uh, this is this is the age of disrupting businesses and disability is, a, is like anything else has become a mega business. And if we don't disrupt it now, we're just gonna be entrenched in segregation one way or another for too many more years. It's time to disrupt the field. Mm -hmm. Well, you've uh, been doing that for a very long time and we appreciate it. <laughs> and the gray hair shows it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dale. You've been listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transition-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Today we spoke with Dale DeLeo about programs of non-work versus real competitive integrated employment. You can learn more about him at daledeleo.com. To hear more from him, there are a number of his talks on YouTube. Just search Dale DeLeo. For more about Yes to Employment, including show notes, links to resources discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit yes2employment.org slash podcast. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a rating on iTunes. Ratings will help us get the series in front of more listeners. Yes to Employment is a production of the Youth Employment Solutions Center, the National Training and Technical Assistance Center that serves as a hub of information and expertise for the Partnerships in Employment, or PIE, state projects. The Yes Center is a collaboration of TASH and Transcend. You can learn more about TASH at TASH.org and more about Transcend at Transcend.org. You can receive updates from the Yes Center on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at yes to employment Partnerships in Employment is a series of seed grants funded by the Administration on Community Livings, Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, made to states for the purpose of transforming state disability support systems to competitive integrated employment. AIDD is dedicated to ensuring that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families are able to fully participate in and contribute to all aspects of community living in the United States and its territories. 
Music for Yes to Employment is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at themusicalautist.org. Be sure to keep Yes to Employment on your list. We'll have another episode on competitive integrated employment for you in the near future. Thank you.